Matthew chapter 9 opens with a miracle that continues the themes that were present in the last two miracles, Jesus' authority and the fear that it inspires. The disciples were afraid of perishing in the storm, but then that fear latched onto Jesus after he stops it with a word. The demon-possessed men were terrifying, but were even more afraid of Jesus. And after Jesus permits the demons to flee, the rest of the town is so scared of Jesus, they beg him to leave. Our miracle in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, is again another demonstration of Jesus' authority, specifically to forgive sins. After a group of friends bring their paralyzed buddy to him, Jesus doesn't immediately heal him, he forgives him of his sins. And this provokes some negative reactions from the scribes who consider such talk blasphemy. Only God can forgive those sins. So to show that his forgiveness actually means something, he tells the paralytic to get up and walk. And when he does, the crowds are once again afraid of Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, we're told that the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one with authority. The miracles that we've been reading have just proved that authority. Now, as the authoritative teacher, Jesus begins to call disciples to follow him. We've already read of him calling Peter, Andrew, and James, and John to follow him, but now we read about Matthew, the author of our gospel. Matthew was a tax collector, and we might bristle at the IRS and our own tax system and get why tax collectors aren't too popular in the gospels, but the issues ran much deeper than not getting the return you hoped for. Matthew was collecting taxes for Rome. Even though many Jews, such as the Pharisees, tolerated Roman rule, they certainly didn't endorse it. They were awaiting the day when God would act decisively to overthrow the Gentile oppressors. But someone like Matthew? They weren't just tolerating the Romans, they were helping them. Moreover, Matthew was stereotyped as a cheat. The way the system worked is you would have people bid on how much revenue they could gather for Rome. The winner with the highest bid would then pay that amount in advance before he began collecting. They earned their money back and more by charging higher rates and keeping the difference for themselves. So Matthew is largely considered a dishonest traitor to the nation. And we can then understand that initial puzzlement when the Pharisees asked the disciples in verse 11, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We might wonder the same thing. If Jesus is about restoring the nation of Israel to a higher dedication to God and all the ethics that that should bring with it, why not start with someone like a Pharisee? They held rigorous standards. Sure, they were misguided on what precisely the will of God was and who that Messiah would be, but they were already very religious. Wouldn't it be easy just to set them on the right path? When we think of sharing the gospel with someone, we might wonder who our best prospects would be. The vaguely spiritual and morally upright person, or would we consider the thoroughly secular and bitter atheist? It's easy for us to rationalize and start with the person we think who is already closer to God, but that's not what Jesus does. He asks Matthew to follow him. His explanation is in verses 12 through 13. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That phrase that he wants the Pharisees to meditate on, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is another quotation from the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6, 6, where God speaks to his people saying, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. The context is instructive for how Jesus saw the Pharisees. Starting in Hosea chapter 6 verse 1, 
we have Israel determining to know God, to love and to follow him. And they trust that he'll heal the nation and protect them. But God's response, starting in verse 4, shows their true feelings. It was great talk, but there's no force behind it. Their love was like the morning dew that dries up as soon as the sun hits it. For all that talk, dedicated sacrifices, and pledges of devotion, it was all loveless. And that's how Jesus sees the Pharisees. All talk, no love. They claimed to be eager to press on to know God, but when Jesus shows up, all they can think of is crucifying him. Matthew, though, when Jesus called to him, he got up and followed Jesus. A disciple isn't someone who's already demonstrated personal holiness or deep understandings of God's will. A disciple of Jesus is someone who gets up and follows him, leaving everything else behind. Now, of course, as they follow Jesus, certain things are going to change. They're going to grow in knowledge. They're going to act more like Jesus. But to draw that separating line according to our arbitrary judgments of who is or isn't a disciple is to cut off people who are following Jesus but don't measure up to us yet. This way of calling disciples, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, this is all new to the other religious movements around. The Pharisees are puzzled why a self-proclaimed holy man would dine with the unclean sinners, and in verse 14, the disciples of John are puzzled as to why none of Jesus' disciples ever fast. Fasting was often occasioned by grief. It was public mourning. The Pharisees fasted as they mourned the state of Israel and God's perceived absence. The disciples of John were possibly fasting as they repented and mourned over their sins. But Jesus' disciples have no need to mourn. He is God in the flesh, and he's shown in the healing of the paralytic that sins can be forgiven and he's willing to forget them. The example of the wineskins and the garments being ruined by new or old wine and patches illustrates that Jesus' system isn't going to fit into their mold. Something new has come that inspires joy, not grief. The last three miracle stories continue to show just what Jesus is bringing us into. Verses 18 through 26 are two stories in one. We have a young girl who's dead, being raised to life by Jesus. And on his way, he's approached secretly by a woman who's had some bleeding issues for the past 12 years. And this would have made her unclean, and as such, she would have been a social and religious outcast. But Jesus, after being touched by her, doesn't recoil in disgust. He praises her, calling her a daughter, and saying that her faith has made her well. To be more specific, her faith has saved her. It's the same Greek word used to describe our salvation from sin and death. So when I look at these two miracles, I group them under that idea. These are pictures of salvation. He saved us from death, raising us to a new life. He saved us from being cast out, drawing us near to himself. And the following two miracles, the healing of the blind and of the mute, are further signs that point to the salvation that God promised in the Old Testament through his prophets. Isaiah 35 pictures the coming of God like water being poured out into the desert and bringing life with it. And it reads in Isaiah 35, 5-6, that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I hope after all this that we can see that the miracles of Jesus were far more than impressive tricks to get attention. They're loaded with symbolism and teach how Jesus brings an abundance of life with him a life that he's willing to share with you.